Once a team of paramedics were being interviewed on a talk show. They were posed the question, what was one of your most unusual and most challenging 911 calls? Well, one of the EMTs began to describe a night when they were summoned down to the local church. A frantic usher had phoned the emergency. During the sermon, a man had passed out in the pew. He appeared dead. The usher couldn't find a pulse. There was no breathing. The man made no movements. But the talk show host was a bit puzzled. She asked the paramedics to recount their most challenging call. You know, something unique, something rare. She pressed them. She said, but what made this particular emergency so unusual? That's when the EMT replied, well, we carried out four church members before we found the one who was really dead. <laughs> Giving new meaning to the term dead church. Hey, dead churches are made up of dead Christians. Folks who are content to pack a pew or occupy a chair. Who take up space, but who forgot about gaining ground and making a difference. In the early 70s, the state of Florida launched a safe driving campaign. Every year on vacation, we would see the signs on the interstates. We would see the license plates, arrive alive. Maybe you remember that. Well, that's not only how I want to get to Florida. It's also how I want to get to heaven. I want to arrive alive. I want to be active for God. I want to be alive in Christ. I think you do too. Hey, the last thing I want to be is a spiritual stiff. Let me ask you, spiritually speaking, do you have a pulse? Does your heart beat for God? Is the breath and influence of the Holy Spirit evident in your life? Are you moving forward? Or are you simply sitting still? One night, a little boy, he fell out of bed with a giant thud. His mom raced into the room to see why he'd taken such an awful tumble. The little guy answered, Mom, it was because I was staying too close to the getting in place. And you know what? This is the problem with countless Christians. There's no progress. They never grow in their faith. They never apply what they learn. They don't dare step up and serve in a meaningful way. It's because they've stayed too close to the getting in place. A Gallup poll revealed that of all church members, only 10% are actively involved in some kind of personal ministry. And worse, the same poll revealed that a whopping 50% had no interest whatsoever in getting involved. Far too many Christians have gotten the notion that faith is for someone else, that they're staying put. They've chosen to camp out near the getting in place. Reminds me of a story. On November the 5th, 2011, a University of Tennessee freshman named Derek Brodus was getting ready to watch the Volunteers football game on his television. He had just gotten comfortable on the couch when his cell phone buzzed. Imagine Derek's surprise when he was told that he was needed at the stadium. It was less than an hour to the kickoff. Coach Dooley had already dispatched a police escort to pick him up and shuttle him to the stadium. You see, both of Tennessee's kickers had injured themselves. The backup kicker had gone down in warm-ups. 
the volunteers needed a place kicker. Earlier that fall, Derek had tried out for the football team, but he'd been cut. Now he was being called on to spring into action. And Derek Brodus made the most of his opportunity that night. He kicked all three extra points he attempted, and he made a 21-yard field goal at the end of the first half. Derek led Tennessee to a 24-0 victory. Back in the locker room after the game, the whole team gave Derek a round of applause. Coach Dooley awarded him the game ball. Derek had started the evening out lying on his couch, eating a bag of potato chips. He ended his night in a most improbable way. Here's a guy who literally answered a call. He got off the couch and into the game, and he won a victory. And this is what I pray happens to each of you. God wants us to get off our spiritual couch and into the game. As believers in Jesus, we're not just called to sit in heavenly places. We're also called to serve in earthly spaces. God wants each of us to have an impact on others. He wants us to actively spread his love and his truth. In fact, I'm convinced that God has a specific plan and purpose for each person in this room today. He wants to use you in a very unique way. It's time for you to get into the game. Over the next several weeks, over the next month or so, we're going to be discussing new opportunities to serve here at Calvary Chapel. We're looking at retooling some of our older ministries. We hope you'll answer the call. This summer is going to be a golden time for you to take a step of faith, for you to get off your couch and into the game. Which brings us to our text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. Here's a story that recounts God's, God's appointing of the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet remembers this in three, in three phases. He first talks about God's call on his life. Then he admits to his recoil from that call. Then finally, God in his grace recalls him again. God's call, his recoil, and then God's recall. Jeremiah writes in verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Chapter 1, verse 4, if I didn't give you that chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Notice first God's call on Jeremiah's life. God ordained him to be a prophet. But read in verse 1 and you'll discover that Jeremiah was already a priest. 
The Hebrew priesthood was not the result of a specific call from God. Pedigree is what made you a priest. Only the sons of Levi were qualified to be priests. I guess you could say a priest was one who sported Levi genes. But being a prophet was a different matter. When we think of a prophet, we envision someone who foretells the future. But the Hebrew prophet's main task was not so much foretelling as it was forthtelling. The prophets were God's spokesmen. They proclaimed God's truth. You might say they were God's press secretary. They proclaimed God's truth as much as they predicted the future. The prophet would reveal God's will to God's people and then he would stand strong for God's truth. And Jeremiah was both a priest and a prophet. You see, he was expected to be a priest. His pedigree made him a priest. But he was elected. He was chosen by God to be a prophet. Born a priest, but appointed a prophet. And do you realize that every believer in Jesus is also called to tasks that are both expected and elected. There are a lot of things that God expects from each of us simply because we're his kids. We need to be gracious. We need to show gratitude. We need a giving spirit. We need to pray. We need to worship and witness and have faith and exemplify purity in our lives. These are all the one-size-fits-all parts of the Christian life. When you're born again... God's Spirit puts these desires in your heart. But there are also activities that God calls us to adopt. God has a specific, personalized, customized calling for each person here today. He expects us to act like a child of God, but He elects us to serve Him in specific ways. We're all called to walk with Jesus and love each other. But beyond that, we have a unique and special ministry. I'm called to be a pastor. Maybe you're called to teach a Bible study or maybe teach kids in Sunday school or to usher or to lead worship or to keep the nursery or to count the offering. Maybe God has caused you to use your business to glorify Him. Or maybe He's called you to do kind deeds for your neighbors or to work with young people in the community or in the church or to be involved in overseas missions. There are tasks that all Christians should do, but I believe there's a specific task that God wants you to do. Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 picks up this theme. Paul compares the church with the human body. We're one body in Christ, but we're made up of many parts. Say you're the spleen. Say someone else is the kidney. Look at the person next to you and say, Ha, kidney. Another person is the liver. Perhaps you're the appendix or the gallbladder. Or maybe you're the tonsils. In which case, you need to get busy. You don't know how much time you've got left. Those tonsils, they can get gone in a hurry. Paul's point, though, is that we all have a specific purpose and function that God has called us to do. In Romans and in 1 Corinthians, the critical factors that determine our calling are our spiritual gifts. But here in Jeremiah, notice other issues get factored into the equation. I love what God says to him in verse 4. He says, before I formed you in the womb, not just when I formed you in the womb, but even before that, I knew you. Before you were born, 
I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Notice the implications here. Before Jeremiah was even born, God was setting the stage for what he wanted this man to do. Before he was conceived, God had conceived a purpose for him. From the womb, God had a plan for this man. And I believe this is the case with each of us. God wires us from our mother's womb to do special tasks, special tasks ordained by him. As a father of four kids, trust me, I've concluded that God throws away the mold after making each kid. I mean, none of my four are exactly alike. They all have their diverse tastes and likes and personalities, strengths and weaknesses. I believe we're all born with a God-given trajectory. And this predetermined wiring, this God-ordained arc to our lives is what plays a role in the ministry that he calls us to assume. I heard it put this way. <clears throat> we, need to discover your, we need to discover our shape. The word shape is an acrostic that outlines how God shapes us for ministry. God compi- combines how we're wired, the spiritual gifts that he gives us, our heart and passion, our abilities, our personality, even our life experiences. He puts all this together and he determines our shape. And our shape helps us find our place of service. First of all, S stands for spiritual gifts. And this should be at the head of the list. It only makes sense that our ministry and that God's enablings go hand in hand. What God calls us to do, he will equip us to do. His calling will employ the supernatural capacities that he's given to us by the Holy Spirit. You could expect a pastor to have the gift of teaching. But other gifts like mercy and giving and exhortation and administration, these also go to shape a person's ministry. The H in the word shape stands for heart. Under the new covenant, God gives to each of us a new heart and new desires and new passions. God often guides us by putting a burning desire deep within our heart for a particular purpose or passion. It's been said, the place God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Think about that. Where does your great joy and the world's needs meet? He matches a desire with a great need. A is the word ability. I can tell you right now, I don't need much spiritual discernment whatsoever to let you know that God hasn't called me to be an automobile mechanic. I know the difference between a wrench and a screwdriver, but just barely. Pastor Sandy under the hood of a car would bring agony to his customers. He certainly wouldn't bring glory to God. You see, ability or lack of it helps us zero in on God's will. On the other hand, I've often thought that the future might have some kind of singing ministry for me, but, well, maybe not. Juggling, how about that? Well, maybe. You're still waiting to see if that's the case. P stands for personality. S is for spiritual gifts. H is for heart. A is for ability. P is for personality. And Jeremiah here is the classic example. Often he's called the weeping prophet. 
He was a tender and sensitive and compassionate man. He was exactly the type of person that God needed to see the nation of Judah through its darkest hours. See, God doesn't always match up a personality with a calling, but when he does, the results can be powerful. And then finally, the E stands for experiences. Do a background check on the Apostle Paul, and you'll see how his life experiences matched up with what God had called him to do. He had a Jewish education. He was a rabbi, and yet he lived in a Gentile culture. He was from the town of Tarsus. His life experiences were the perfect blend for a man that God would call to take the gospel to the Gentile world. So here's the question. What's your shape? Our text teaches us that God's plan from the get-go began while Jeremiah was in utero. Even in the womb, God had wired him in a predetermined way. He had molded and fashioned Jeremiah for his future ministry. And I'm sure that God has done the same in your life. Before he birthed you, he matched up a person and a purpose. And he continues to shape you through your life experiences and through the talents he's given you and through the spiritual gifts and even the passions he puts in your heart. God called Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nation and God is calling you to a specific task, a role, a ministry that will make you effective for him. Here in chapter 1, God calls. But Jeremiah, he recoils at God's call. Notice what he says in verse 6. Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. Now, when we read of him mentioning his youth, we assume that Jeremiah was 11, maybe 12 years old. Probably not. The Hebrew word translated youth doesn't speak of a child per se, but of a maturing young man, perhaps as old as 20 years old, maybe even into his late 20s. Realize age was a crucial factor in Hebrew culture. A priest didn't begin his ministry until he was 30 years old. Perhaps this was why Jesus waited until he reached his 30s before he began his public ministry. You see, the Hebrews equated age with wisdom, and thus they looked down their noses at a man younger than 30 years old. I used to have this problem. When I was a younger man, people refused to take me seriously. For some mysterious reason, over the last few years, this is no longer an issue. I guess folks are becoming more tolerant these days. We used to have this sweet, lovely little Cuban lady in our church. She was a wonderful lady. Her name was Mrs. Aliman. She had left Cuba when uh, Castro took over. And, and when she turned 30, she was, when I turned 30, she was so happy. And I'll never forget, after my birthday, the next Sunday, she came forward after the service and she said, Pastor Sandy, Pastor Sandy, I'm so happy that we no longer have a young pastor. <laughs> I'm glad she was happy. Didn't do much for me at the moment. But she assumed that anyone under 30 was still a kid. This was the Jewish mindset. Reminds me of the elderly lady with a severe toothache. She was in pain and her regular dentist was out of town. There was no way she could delay the treatment until he returned, and so she was referred to another dentist. 
But when she saw the substitute dentist, she panicked. I mean, this guy was younger enough to be her grandson. The baby-faced fellow looked like a teenager. Was he even old enough to have graduated from college? As she assessed the situation, the dentist, he went right to work. He numbed up her gums, and he was preparing to drill. And that's when the frightened lady, she turned to him, and she said, Sonny, you're so young. How long have you been a dentist? Of course, the dentist was offended. He ignored the question until he started drilling. And that's when he stopped just a second. He looked down, and he winked at her, and he said softly, You mean counting today? <laughs> it's interesting what Paul wrote to a young Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. He said, Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Timothy wasn't to get offended by prejudicial attitudes toward his age. He was to go on with his ministry. Be a godly example. This is how God responds to Jeremiah. He says, do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Understand in the spiritual realm, age doesn't always equate to wisdom. An old man can be a fool, whereas God can give a young man wisdom beyond his years. If Jeremiah walks with God, if he goes where God tells him to go, if he speaks what he hears from God, age won't be a factor. Baseball pitcher Satchel Paige, he pitched in the big leagues until he was 48 years old. And he would often ask folks the question, how old would you think you are if you didn't know how old you really are? He says, I know 20-year-olds with 90-year-old minds and 90-year-old guys with 20-year-old minds. I've heard it said, age is nothing but mind over matter. If you don't mind, it really don't matter. <laughs> History is full of examples to prove that God can use men of any age. Did you know Alexander the Great conquered the world at age 23? Charles Spurgeon was preaching to packed crowds in the city of London at age 19. Pastor Sandy started Calvary Chapel. <laughs> oh my. At age 22. If you're a teenager or if you're a college student here this morning, you don't have to wait until you become a fossil to start serving God. I never speak to our youth group as the church of tomorrow. It is the church of today. Even as a young person prepares himself for the future, he can have an impact, she can have an impact for Jesus today. The time to serve the Lord is always right now. But realize... The real reason that Jeremiah recoils from God's call, it really has nothing to do with his age. His youth was merely an excuse. You see, the reason for his recoil was fear. He balks at God's call because he's afraid. Jeremiah fears stepping out into the unknown. You see, it's always easier to sit on the sidelines than it is to get into the game. It's interesting, but I find few examples in Scripture where a man responds to God's call at the first communique. I hear of any, even fewer examples today. Here's the usual pattern. God calls me to a task that I recoil to because of some fear. 
then God recalls me to that task in a way that confronts my fear and focuses me on trusting in Him. As the old saying goes, faith is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to trust God in spite of our fear. In short, faith is fear that said its prayers. Well, Jeremiah, he has to have some time here to say his prayers. He has a phobia. It's a fear of people. So when God recalls, he deals with this issue in Jeremiah's life by saying this, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you. You see, Jeremiah was a sensitive, he was an impressionable person. And he cared about what people thought about him. As a result, he was ruled and he was swayed by people's opinions. What about you? Do you fear what other people might think? You know, the problem with some people is they don't care at all about what other people think of them. This can be a real problem. Such a person usually makes a lousy witness for Jesus. But on the other hand, you can obsess so much about other people's opinions that it causes you to betray the truth and to compromise your values. Hey, we we all want to be liked, but when we want to be liked at all costs, that becomes a problem. That weakness will make for a poor witness. If you're easily intimidated by the opinions of other people, then like Jeremiah, you need to understand the power of a facial expression. It takes courage to face a face. Hey, as a pastor, I'm well aware of the impact of people's facial expressions. As a matter of fact, as I'm speaking to you this morning, you're speaking to me. Even though your mouth is closed, you're still speaking to me. Your face, your posture provides me feedback. Hey, they don't call it body language for nothing. Clenched teeth tells me you're getting angry. A wrinkled, furrowed brow tells me that I'm really not getting through to you. Heavy eyelids inform me that you've either stayed up too late last night or you're on some kind of medication or I'm as boring as a South Georgia freeway. (laughs) Piercing stares make me think that I've offended you. Blank looks probably relay that you're confused. Hysterical pointing lets me know that you, well, it makes me check my zipper. Hold on a second. Hey, pleasant smiles, let me know that you're enjoying my talk this morning. But whatever you're saying to me, your face is speaking volumes, trust me. Do you care too much about what other people think? Do you fear the faces? Have you ever been intimidated by a disapproving scowl or a mocking smirk or an ignoring shrug? God says to Jeremiah, do not be afraid of their faces. We all have to face our fears, even when our fear is a face. I learned this early on in my ministry. I'll never forget the lady with the cold, icy stare. Oh, my. 
She came to Calvary Chapel one Sunday morning, and if looks can kill, she machine gunned me down in a gangland slang. I mean, it was awful. In all my years, I've never received such negative vibes from a person. It was, it was terrible. I just knew this woman hated me and the message that I preached. How surprised I was when the person who brought her that morning later that afternoon called me to tell me that they had prayed together over lunch and she had given her life to Jesus Christ. How amazing. After the service, they had gone to lunch and, and she had followed up and she had received the message and absorbed the message and it had cut to her heart. And I was shocked. But I learned an important fact that day. You can't be afraid of the faces. You can't be intimidated. And this is what Jeremiah had to learn. You see, his youth was just an excuse for his fears. Let me ask you, what's your excuse for not answering God's call on your life? What reason have you given God for your recoil to his call? Or I'm too old. Or I don't have time. Or I might fail. Or I don't know enough scripture. I'm waiting till my kids get older. Or once my job settles down. Or when my health improves. Or when I settle into that new home. Oh, I'm just one person. Oh my. Don't ever say you're just one person. I, I like the old African proverb. If you think you're too small or too few to make a difference, then spend the night in an enclosed room with a mosquito. That'll show you what small and few can do. None of the reasons that I've listed are any more valid than being too young. They're just excuses, like Jeremiah's. Excuses that don't fly in the face of God. Speaking of excuses, Abraham was old. Jacob was insecure. Leah was unattractive. Joseph was abused. Moses stuttered. Gideon was poor. Samson was codependent. Rahab was immoral. David had an affair and various family problems. Elijah was suicidal. Jonah was reluctant. Naomi was a widow. John the Baptist was eccentric. Peter was impulsive. Martha worried a lot. Zacchaeus was unpopular. Thomas was a doubter. Paul had poor health. Timothy was timid. But they had one commonality. God used them for his glory. He can use anybody if they stop making excuses. I read a funny poem. It was written through the eyes of a little girl at dinner time. She had been told by a determined mother that she was going to sit there until she ate her peas. Oh, mama, please, don't make me eat these stone-cold peas. They've grown eyes, and they're looking at me. I love to eat berries, oranges, broccoli with cheese, apples, pears that hang on trees. Corn on the cob is really a treat, but peas on a plate are no fun to eat. I've grown attached to these peas. We've been here so long. Would setting them free be so terribly wrong? Just look at them now, so green and so lowly. Do you want me to just sit here and wrinkle up slowly? If you listen carefully, you can hear their pleas. Peas, oh peas, let us be freeze. <laughs> 
So mama, things will be just fine if you don't make me eat all these friends of mine. I'm sure from that little girl's vantage point, her argument made sense. But I'll bet mom didn't buy it. And if you could hear our excuses through the ears of Almighty God, they would find, sound just as silly as that little girl's poem. What's the real reason for your recoil? Is there a fear that you need to face? In Matthew 25, Jesus tells of a master who had three servants. He gave the first servant five talents, a sum of money. To the second servant, he gave two talents. To the third servant, he gave a single talent. The first two servants, they invested their money wisely and they doubled their talents. But rather than investing his money, the third servant buried it in the ground. It was a critical mistake. He wasted his opportunity and he made his master angry. You see, he stayed too close to the getting in place. And he ended up suffering a terrible consequence. In Matthew 25, verse 25, the servant explains his reasoning. He says, I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Again, why did he do it? I was afraid. Oh, the destructive power of fear. Our fears are often the robber of what could have been, of what should have been, had we just learned to walk by faith. Well, notice when God recalls Jeremiah, he counters his fear with a promise. The Lord tells him, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you. You see, here's how you face a fear. Even when that fear is a face, you look past the face or whatever it is that you fear and you look straight into the face of God. He promises you, I am with you to deliver you. The Almighty is with you. You see, God promises us His presence and His peace and His power and His protection. He promises us deliverance. And when we look into his face, we believe his promise. This is also what God promised to Joshua at the outset of his ministry. You remember he told General Joshua, Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid nor be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Talk about a legitimate fear. Joshua had one. I mean, there were giants in the land. But his fears were put to rest by the company that he would keep. Our great deliverer would be with him, just as he would be with Jeremiah. Reminds me of the fellow who had an interesting password for his cell phone. It was a Latin phrase, pro nobis. One day a friend asked him what it meant. And immediately, this grown man, he teared up. He was moved emotionally. He said, it means for us. My life was transformed when I learned that God is for us. And I now use it as my password, so I'll never forget that truth. In the words of Romans 8, verse 31, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God doesn't tell Jeremiah to ignore what people think or to even negate their concerns. Rather, God challenges Jeremiah to look right past their concerns, right past their opinions, 
even past the ministry to which he's been called, and realize that God is for him. And hey, God is for you too. In verse 9, the Lord not only speaks to this future prophet, but he touches him. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Jeremiah will go on to be a prophet for God for the next five decades. He'll go on and he'll serve the span of five Jewish kings. But notice here, every work of God begins with a touch from God. After Jeremiah embraces God's call wholeheartedly, he receives God's touch. And hey, that's always the case. That's how it works. God is faithful to equip the person that he calls. So many of our fears don't factor in what God will do in our lives after we've moved past those fears, after we've looked into his face, after we've answered the call and embraced the ministry. Once we agree with what he's appointed us to do, then we find the sustenance and the touch from God and the power of God to accomplish those purposes. As soon as we say yes to his calling, God is faithful to touch us with his power and his wisdom and his love and everything else we need to fulfill that calling. Our inadequacies evaporate in his sufficiency. Well, what is God calling you to do? What's your shape? Have you thought about it? Don't you think it's time you got off your spiritual couch and into the game? Have you stayed too close to the getting in place? God is for us. God is for you. He has prepared you from your mother's womb. Your life is no accident. He can even redeem your wasted years and your foolish mistakes for his glory. You see, God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for your life. Why be a spectator? Why sleep away our opportunities? It's time for you and me to face up to the faces and the issues we fear and set our gaze on the face of Jesus. Take heed this morning and answer God's call for your life.